Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, here we are again for part two of our look at systemic racism in the criminal justice system. Here's a statistic for you. According to the nonprofit sentencing project of uh, America is the world leader in incarcerations with 2.2 million people in jail or prisons. That's a lot of people going through the courts. That is. That's the population of a large city or even some countries. That is true. It's amazing and frightening. Well, just like we did in part one, we're going to be citing Radley Balco's June 2020 Washington Post story on systemic racism in the criminal justice system, in which he reviewed 155 studies and found that 145 confirmed systemic racism in the American criminal justice system. And today our focus is going to be on the courts, and that will include jurors, prosecutors, judges, as well as sentencing and wrongful convictions. Well, people can look no further than Khalif Browder, the Central Park Five, the Jenna Six, and stories and movies like the ones in Just Mercy and several other overturned convictions done by the Innocence Project. Based on those stories and the demographics provided in several studies, you can see where court is where a lot of Black people start down a road that they may never get off of. You're exactly on target, my dear niece. Now, you and I became interested in this topic because of the well-researched book, Slavery by Another Name, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. And uh, that book is by Douglas A. Blackman. Yes, there are many instances in that book about Black African Americans being arrested, tried, and executed swiftly with little to no due process. That's correct. That brings to mind a story Blackman told of the teacher named David Wyatt, uh, who in uh, I'm sorry, in 1903, was arrested and jailed for an altercation with the town's white superintendent. Wyatt never even made it to a trial by jury. Now, I have to warn our listeners that what comes next is graphically violent. So this might be a moment to uh, turn us down and bring us back in a couple of seconds. But once Wyatt was arrested and thrown into jail, by nightfall, that very night that he was arrested, at least 2,000 whites were gathered in the town, including women and children who were encouraged to attend the spectacle. A phalanx of 200 men attacked the steel doors of the the jail at the rear with sledgehammers, pounding it with thousands of hammer blows. And after a half an hour, they really went at this, the door splintered open, Wyatt was seized from his cell, cell, and his head immediately smashed. 
He was dragged into the street. The mob surged around him, kicking and stomping his body until it was matted in blood and dirt. A rope was secured to his neck he, uh, that was tossed to two men who had climbed a telegraph pole. Uh, Wyatt then was hoisted just a few feet off the ground. And as his body whipped back and forth, members of the crowd gouged, stabbed, and sliced his torso, legs, and arms with knives. Now that is pure nightmare fuel and i love scary movies and i wouldn't even want to watch that it's so sad that people had to live under the fear of not only an unjust justice system the knowing that if they were ever in the clutches of that justice system they wouldn't even be protected in jail you got that right and the sad part about wyatt's situation is he had not even committed a crime he had a disagreement with the superintendent of the school and ended up that night arrested and then murdered with no due process. So um, as we've talked about that particular story, I'm intrigued that that can't be the only story of this nature. So I'm going to give it back to you, Courtney, because I think you might have one for us. I do. And I want to give a trigger warning about the story I'm going to tell. So if mentionings of domestic violence, sexual assault, um, anything of that may be a trigger for you, this might not be a story you want to listen to, but it is a true story and one that needs to be told. March 5th, 1945 is an anniversary that the state of Georgia would like to forget, I'm sure. That date involves a woman by the name of Lena Baker. Now, Lena was born in southwest Georgia in 1901 to sharecroppers, and like many men and women living in the south during this time, she moved north to find a better life, which she didn't. That's okay. It's always good to move back home. But in 1941, Lena was 40 years old and back in Southwest Georgia, living with her mother and her own three children. Lena took jobs as a maid to support her family, but they were all low paying. Now, what at the time probably seemed like a blessing, she was approached by the, a man by the name of Eugene Knight to take on the job of being a nursemaid to his father, Ernest Knight, who had recently broken his hip. Ernest owned the local grist mill and was known by the town as a man who had a bad temper, a man who was an alcoholic, and a man who carried a gun. Ooh, all three of those are very, very volatile issues. It's a bad mix. Now, the job was well-paying for the time and steady work, which meant Lena could stay close to home and stay close to her kids. And the job would be variably easy because... Ernest was housebound due to his injury. Now, during the course of two years, her em employment with Mr. Knight changed. There was a switch. The two began a sexual relationship, and many were report that er Lena was Ernest's wife in everything but name only. No one is sure how consensual the relationship was between Ernest and Lena. Some researchers state that it was a consensual relationship, but a volatile one that uh, had both physical and sexual abuse. And Ernest always was the aggressor. John Cole Vodka, the director of the America's-based in inmate advocacy program known as the Prison and Jail Project, is quoted as saying that Knight had kept Ms. Baker as his virtual sex slave. 
She was his paramour, his mistress, and among other things, his drinking partner. Now, if you read the, the transcripts from the child and have a trial and understanding of black and white relations, oftentimes black women in this time were subjected to the sexual whims of their white masters, their white bosses, or some white men who had control over their lives or their family's lives. Now, one person who did not care what the relationship between Ernest and Lena was, was Ernest's son, Eugene, the very man who had hired Lena. Both he and the neighbors had called the sheriff to investigate the relationship, not the abuse, between his father and Lena. Eugene even had tried to convince his father to move to Florida to rid himself of Lena, but that plan did not work because Lena just went with Ernest to Florida. Now, upon their return, Eugene had had enough. He openly threatened Lena with violence and would testify in open court that he beat her within an inch of his life to make sure she stayed away from his father. And that was a fact that the jury didn't even bat an eye at. Wow, Courtney, this is amazing. You can find some of the most um, horrific stories. And this all sounds like it can't end well. Um, So... I think I need to take a deep breath, and our listeners do too. So before we hear the rest of this story, let's take a break. Well, Courtney, we're back, and I'm somewhat anxious to hear how this story ends. But before you finish, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com, for information. And they can also take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. Now, if you like our podcast, please um, leave a comment. And if you feel like it, give us five stars. Now, got that out of the way, let's hear the rest of this Lena Baker story. Well, when we left off, Lena had just suffered a severe beating from Eugene Knight, the son of Ernest Knight. This beating scared her enough to move her back in with her mother to escape the abuse of both the Knight men, father and son. However, Ernest did not want his relationship with Lena to end. On April 29, 1944, he came to Lena's home and demanded that she leave with him and go to his grist mill so they could talk alone. Upon entering the mill's office, he locked Lena inside from throughout the night and well into the morning of April 30th. That was a Sunday. Ernest went to church. Hmm, interesting. After church, he spent the rest of the day physically and sexually abusing Lena up until nightfall. He left again, only to return with food and whiskey. Lena begged him to set her free. She had been away from her children for almost over 24 hours, but Ernest denied this request and made it very clear that in no uncertain terms, she would stay, she would do whatever he wanted, or he would kill her. Oh, wow. This, again, bizarre, bizarre, frightening. It's, it, 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 it's a very scary story. Now, upon Ernest's re- return, Lena did notice that he left the door unlocked. So when she saw the opportunity, she ran to make her escape. That's when Ernest pulled his pistol. The pair, in the words of Ms. Baker, got to tussling around. 
she was able to wrestle the gun away from him and pull it on him. Ernest picked up a metal pole with one purpose and one purpose only, and Lena knew it was to kill her. So she shot him squarely in the head, killing him instantly. Bing. Well, this would be the part in most movies that we cheer the heroine on, but not Lena. The next day, she reported the incident to the police, telling them that this was self-defense and explaining the abuse she had endured. But instead of getting proper care and justice, she was promptly arrested and charged with capital murder. Wait, wait. Lena is arrested? She is arrested. No investigation was made into her claims of abuse, even the beating at the hands of Eugene, the son. She was arrested for capital murder. And if you know Georgia, capital murder has one outcome, and that's death. Lena was about to go on trial to be the first woman executed in the state of Georgia. Mm. Now, like I previously stated, no attempt was made to investigate her claims of abuse or self-defense, despite everyone knowing about Ernest's reputation for being an abusive drunk. The police claimed they never found any metal bar that Lena had been threatened with, choosing instead to focus on the relationship between Lena and Ernest, which we already know had a very weird power dynamic based on race, sex, and the times that we're talking about. What was concluded is that it was Ernest who was trying to leave Lena, and she murdered him in cold blood. Wow, that's a switcheroo. Big time. Four months later, Lena went to trial for capital murder. Lena's attorney, her defense attorney, did not call a single witness in her defense. And although there was ample precedent for her to be charged with voluntary manslaughter, nobody bothered to bring it up. The trial, the verdict, and the sentencing took place within a span of four hours. With someone's life on the line, a death sentence in the hang- hanging in the balance? Four hours? Four hours. Not even a full work shift. But at the end of that four hours, Lena Baker was sentenced to die. Lena's attorney did try to file an appeal, but then dropped her case completely a month later. Without adequate legal counsel, the court dismissed her appeal because she was unable to find a return, an attorney, which to them was proof enough that Lena was not making an effort to prosecute her appeal. Now imagine being penniless with a sixth grade education and on death row and then being accused of not trying to work on your appeal. How was she supposed to get an attorney? Mm, this, is, this gets more incredible as you go. So what happened next? Her execution date was set for March 5th, 1945, almost a year from from when the incident took place. Lena's final words as she sat in the electric chair were this, what I done, I done in self-defense or I would have been killed myself. Where I was, I could not overcome it. I am ready to meet my God. Oh, that's so pitiful. What, oh, such sad words. Lena was buried in an unmarked grave behind Mount Vernon Baptist Church, but I'm glad to say this. In 1998, church members purchased a headstone, which renewed interest in the story that many wanted to keep quiet 
so they wouldn't stir up trouble or racial tensions. In 2003, Lena Baker's family began to campaign heavily to have Lena pardon. And in 2005, the state of Georgia did pardon Lena and declare her innocent of all crimes. A movie starring Tashina Arnold, which people may know from the show Martin or Everybody Hates Chris, or if you're into musicals, she was in Little Shop of Horrors, premiered in 2008 and was screened to sold out audience throughout audiences throughout Atlanta and was even shown at the Cannes Film Festival. Although Lena was pardoned, it took decades to bring this case, this case to life. She was a victim of being sexually abused, physically abused. She was black, she was poor, but more importantly, she was innocent from the start. This is a prime example about how racist and biased jurors can be as deadly as any weapon when it comes to the freedom or incarceration or even life of African Amer Black African Americans on trial. Wow, Courtney, again, that is a story for the ages. I had never heard the Lena Baker story, so I appreciate your bringing it to light. And I also appreciate you bringing to light how important the jury system is in this country. Um, obviously, Lena was not given the benefit of a trial by jury of her peers. And to have a trial end in four hours and a death sentence levied, that's just amazing. That story sends chills through me, especially especially since she had a trial by jury. And unfortunately, not one of her peers was there to um, hear that story and perhaps make, this, uh, make a different outcome for her. Now, we know the Supreme Court made it illegal for prosecutors to exclude prospective jurors because of race. Uh, there was a case in 1986, uh, the Batson, Batson v. Kentucky that ruled um, that it was illegal to do this, as in the Lena Baker case, but that ruling has largely gone, gone unenforced. The New Yorker reported in 2015 that in the approximately 30 years since the ruling, courts have accepted the flimsiest excuses for striking Black African-American jurors. In 2010, for example, the Equal Justice Initiative documented cases in which courts upheld prosecutors' dismissal of jurors because of what uh, allegedly are race-neutral factors, such as affiliation with a historically Black college, a son in an interracial marriage, living in a Black-majority neighborhood, or that a juror shucked and jived. Hmm. But Ann Carroll, doesn't the Sixth Amendment guarantee the rights of criminal defendants, including the right to a public trial without unnecessary delay, the right to have a lawyer, the right to an impartial jury, and the right to know who your accusers are and the nature of the charges and the evidence against you? That doesn't seem to be happening. Who else plays a role in all of this? Well, my dear niece, you have a very, very good command of the Sixth Amendment. So the other folks that play a role in this are the prosecutors. Let me tell you a little bit about their role and why things can be skewed against Black African Americans. In a 2015 study by the Women Donors Network, there was, they found that three-fifths of the states where prosecutors are elected, there isn't a single Black prosecutor. 
And overall, the study found that in the United States, 95% of elected prosecutors are white and nearly 80% of them are white men. In death penalty states, which include Colorado, Delaware, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, South Dakota, Tennessee, Washington, and Wyoming, all of the elected district attorneys were white, and that was as of the year 2015. So biased jurors, no diversity when it comes to prosecutors. If I didn't read the data myself, I would think this is some sort of conspiracy theory, crime, court drama written by John Grisham. Pure fiction. Well, unfortunately, it's not fiction at all. Uh, additional studies tell us why it's not fiction. In 2013, there was a study that found, after adjusting for numerous other va uh, variables, it found that federal prosecutors were almost twice as likely to bring charges carrying mandatory minimums against black defendants as against white defendants accused of similar crimes. Okay, I get it, but the days of the hanging judges are over. The judge has to be fair. Somebody's got to be the adult here. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that, Courtney, but unfortunately, um, just because you have a judge doesn't mean you're going to have fairness. A study published in May 2018 found that when a white person and a black person are convicted of similar crimes, Republican appointed judges sentence the black person to three months longer in prison. Wow. Mm -hmm. So wow. it looks like political party plays into this. And remember, some of these judges probably are not black African-Americans. Uh, speaking of judges who are black or African-American, the Journal of Legal Studies in 2015, uh, yes, the Journal of Legal Studies in 2015 found that black federal judges are about 10 percentage points more likely to be reversed on appeal than white federal judges. So even when you have a judge who has um, attained the, the rank of a federal uh, bench and clearly must have the credentials to be there, because that person is Black African American, they're reversed in their decisions. So even trying to do the right thing can turn on you? It certainly can. It certainly can. Let me tell you something else. Black people are consistently arrested, charged, and convicted of drug crimes, including possession, distribution, and conspiracy at far higher rates than white people. This despite the research showing that both races use and sell drugs at about the same rate. I can believe that. Learning what we've learned about the war on drugs and how drugs was put, drugs were put in certain communities, I can definitely understand that fact. I get it, right. Now, we talked about uh, Lena Baker and her situation with that horrific penalty of uh, being sentenced to death. Let me, let me give you some background on that as well. When it comes to the death penalty, race is important, but only from the research, only from the research as it pertains to the race of the victim. Killers of Black people rarely get death sentences. White killers of Black people get death sentences even less frequently. And far and away, the type of murder most likely to bring a death sentence is a Black man who kills a white woman. 
which all goes back to bias, fears, all mm-hmm. the way back to what we learned in the first episode. Mm-hmm. It seems mm-hmm. like we're building upon ourselves. That's shocking. It is shocking and it's unfortunate. And you definitely don't want to be the person who ends up with that death, death penalty. Let's talk a little bit about wrongful conviction because we see a lot of news articles these days about people who uh, have been released, have been discovered to have been wrongly uh, convicted. So here, here's some, some information you might want to know. Innocent Black people are also three to 3.5 times more likely than white people to be wrongly convicted of sexual assault and 12 times more likely to be wrongly convicted of drug crimes. And remember, uh, the data on wrongful convictions is very limited in that it only considers the wrongful convictions that we know about. So those numbers could really be much, much higher. I can see that. Just like I said in the beginning about the Central Park Five, the Genesis, uh, but even a gentleman that's on America's Got Talent right now, his whole story is based on how he was wrongfully convicted and recently released. Yep. We see those stories almost every day. Um, Sentencing, which is also part of the court system, is uh, an area where we see discrepancies and disparities as well. A survey of data from the U.S. Sentencing Commission in 2017 found that when Black men and white men commit the same crime, Black men on on average receive a sentence almost 20% longer. And when it comes to federal gun crimes, Black people are more likely to be arrested, more likely to get longer sentences for similar crimes, and more likely to get what's called sentencing enhancements. That's a nice way of saying longer, harder, tougher sentences. And Courtney, it starts early. While Black youth make up 14% of the youth population, a 2018 study found that they make up 53% of minors transferred to adult court for offenses against persons despite the fact that white and black youth make up nearly an equal percentage of youth charged with such offenses. So once again, we see the inequity in sentencing. Young black people end up uh, being sent to be tried as adults much more often than white youth. So we've spent a lot of time seeing and saying what systemic racism is in the courts but it is still possible to confront it within our own personal spheres of influence. We don't have to be discouraged. For example, we encourage you to follow the work of the Sentencing Project. It's a nonprofit whose mission it is to work for a fair and effective criminal justice system. And they offer some steps we can take to address this issue. That's right. You can also petition elected officials to examine and remove policies and practices that can contribute to racial inequity. And remember to vote in elections if your state elects judges and prosecutors. Something else you can do is recommend to local officials to invest in interventions that promote strong youth development in age-appropriate and evidence-based ways. Ask your city representative to shift resources to community-based prevention for substance abuse and to work to remove barriers that make it hard for individuals with criminal records to turn their lives around. 
Well, you know, uh, once again, it sometimes seems like we can't do much in our little area, but some of those, those suggestions that we've given are starters, they're starting points. The big thing is to do something because the criminal justice system, as you can see from the statistics and stories we've told, there is systemic racism, but it can be confronted and dismantled. So once again, Courtney, we've taken a big, big bite but if folks want to know more or follow our work, what would you tell them to do? I would say that you can find us on social media, Instagram at Why Are They So Angry, Facebook at Why Are They So Angry. Leave us a like on the Facebook page and a like on Instagram, as well as Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore online. You can also go to our website, whyaretheysoangry.com, where you can find more information and consider taking our online course. Well, that gives folks a lot of opportunities. And the next time around, we will be finishing up this trilogy on the criminal justice system in America. Join us for our final episode in the Justice Trilogy. We hope to hear from you soon. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.